This season of The Francis Effect is sponsored in part by Franciscan Media, seeking to spread the gospel in the spirit of St. Francis. Franciscan Media publishes books by authors like Richard Rohr, Heather King, and Ronald Rollheiser. Get 25% off your first order in the store when you use the code FRANCISFX, that's Francis, the letter F, and the letter X, at franciscanmedia.org. That's franciscanmedia.org. This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Hello and welcome to the Francis Effect Podcast. This episode is for mid-October 2018. My name is David Dalt and I host a radio show called Things Not Seen about culture and faith. I'm here with my friend Dan Haran. He's a Franciscan friar of Holy Name Province in New York and he's an assistant professor of systematic theology and spirituality at Catholic Theological Union in Chicago. Every couple of weeks, we get together to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. Dan, as always, it's great to see you. Welcome. David, always a pleasure. We're going to check in for a few minutes, and then after that, we'll take a break, and then we will welcome our guest today, Carmen Nanco Fernandez. So, Dan, how have you been for the past couple of weeks? Good. I've been busy. <laughs> surprise, surprise, <laughs> as you have, I know. So we're well into the semester. The courses I'm teaching this semester are really very good. Great, great students. That's all wonderful. I've had a lot of uh, speaking events. So I think in the last episode, we promoted the Sundays at CTU public lecture, where I spoke about Pope Francis's recent exhortation. After that, I had the privilege of giving um, two keynote talks at a conference for the Catholics on Call Partners Program, where I really kind of talked about the forthcoming synod on young adults, kind of hopes and challenges, uh, context, that sort of thing, which was really well received and, and led to some great conversation. And as we're recording this, the synod on young adults, the Bishop Synod is underway. So um, I'm, I'm trying uh, to, to stay on top of that and, and to keep an eye on how the interventions, that is, the, the comments from the floor are going, how the discussion unfolds. It'll be very curious to see in the coming weeks what that's like. And then I was in Raleigh, North Carolina last weekend um, to give another keynote address at a at a conference on Franciscan ministry and Franciscan uh, spirituality. They had about 200, 220 or so folks, mostly lay folks from uh, the Diocese of Raleigh that came to this. It was really a lot of fun. So been on the road more than I have uh, lately, which is pretty typical for this time of year, but I'm plugging along, hanging in there. Well, we're also recording this on October 4th, the Feast of St. Francis. And so I know that listeners will be curious, how does a Franciscan celebrate the Feast of St. Francis? That's a very good question. So it varies by community and varies by year. It varies by when the Feast of St. Francis falls. So uh, as it happens, this is a Thursday and, you know, friars have to work and have to minister and everything too. So the way that we celebrate it, actually, 
actually, the Franciscan family celebrates the Feast of St. Francis beginning the night before. And it's in addition to just the typical evening prayer or evening prayer one for those familiar with the Liturgy of the Hours. We actually have a, a, a paraliturgical celebration called the Transitus. So October 3rd is actually the date that St. Francis of Assisi died. And so most saints have their feast day either on their death or on their birthday, uh, usually on their death day. It's interesting that Francis's feast is October 4th, but he died on the 3rd. And so for us, it's a two-day celebration. And we celebrate the Transitus in Latin. That just means the, the really the transition from this world to the next. And Francis of Assisi had a real robust spirituality and theology of death. Um, somebody who was very much focused theologically on the incarnation of God. You know, he focused on the crib and the cross, as is oftentimes said in the Franciscan circle. In the canticle, he talks yeah. about sister death. He does. Yeah. That's exactly right. And so he, he describes, uh, what he calls bodily death, our sister, um, in real sororal fraternal terms because he understood death not as, as so much of the Western Christian theological tradition has presented it as some kind of thing added on or effective sin as such, but rather he saw it and recognized it as part of God's plan for creation, that it wasn't, as he put it, you know, something to be feared, but part of what it means to live, part of what God has intended. And so he, he talks often about, um, this, this passage, you know, it's, it's, from birth into this life and then birth into eternal life, which I think is a really great way to look at it. And so people may wonder, you know, if you go to art museums around the, the world or if you see uh, Google pictures of St. Francis of Assisi online, oftentimes you'll see these classical paintings by like El Greco, for instance, and others, Chimabui and so forth, where Francis is depicted holding a skull or there's a skull near him. And it's just kind of creepy, but it's, it's this idea of recognizing our mortality, our corporeality, the, the incarnation of Christ and that death does not have the last word that actually it's not something to be feared, but welcomed kind of like a sister. So we celebrate that on the evening of October 3rd. And then Again, it varies by community. So uh, our local community here, Blessed Giles, we we had kind of a more solemn celebration of the Eucharist, a mass this morning. You know, when we celebrate mass as a community, not always do we all wear our habits or something like this, depending on, you know, what people's ministries are for that day and this sort of thing. Morning prayer, sometimes people, you know, they're just getting up or whatever it may be, but we all were in our habits and, and you know, there's a special liturgy for, for the fry. You know, we sing the Gloria, for instance, which, which is uh, signifies that it's it's a solemnity for us. It's not just a memorial or a feast. So um, it's, it's a big deal. And then later today, um, our local community is having what we call a house chapter where it's kind of a faith sharing uh, opportunity in addition. So after we, we have dinner of kind of festive dinner, then we'll kind of reflect on our Franciscan vocation and, and uh, spirituality in a particular way. So that's, that's us. So how, how are you enough about me and the Franciscans? How is David Dalton and company? I am so tired. So when we taped the last episode, I was mentioning that Commonweal was about to launch its podcast, and I wasn't sure exactly when it was going to launch. Well, it launched, and in fact, it launched with kind of a, a big push at the beginning, and so we didn't do just one episode, but we did, in fact, as, as, I'm, as we're taping this, we're about to release today the third episode, the official uh, all-edited episode of the Commonweal podcast, but in addition to that, every, every portion of the podcast 
episode. So it's got like maybe three or four parts. Every one of those has an expanded segment that you can go onto the feed and listen to as well. So if you get a snippet of an interview in the podcast itself, you can go and listen to that entire interview um, on their podcast feed and on their webpage. And so I've been editing not only these episodes, but also these long segments, which wow. means that it's been, in addition to my other client work that I do, it's been nearly back to back for the last three weeks. And it'll it'll ease up now that we've got these three out. We're going to go to now, I think, a monthly release schedule for a while. And then I think the plan eventually is to go to twice a month. But really, it's been very exciting to watch this organization kind of get its sea legs in terms of podcasting. And they've really embraced it. They are, they're now figuring out how to produce this material in a way that is manageable for their workflow and for mine. Um, but it, it's been, I've learned a lot in terms of, of, you know, having this much work on my plate and having family responsibilities and everything else. So that is good. The one thing that has gone by the, the way a little bit has not been the writing, but the editing, because, you know, I still have some book projects that need to happen. I had planned with the end of September, the beginning of October to be spending about an hour to two hours a day editing some of these book projects that have had the, the raw material produced. I haven't been able to pivot to that yet, although I'm still writing every day. And so the plan is that, you know, once things ease up in this next week, I'll be getting into that one to two hours a day schedule for that. And, you know, the transition into school. So my my daughter is now singing in the choir and she's very excited about that at her parish school. Uh, my son is very excited about Halloween coming up. And actually, my daughter is, too. Fall is a good time for us because we tend to do a lot of family centric activities on the weekends. So we'll go down to County Line Orchard and we'll pick pumpkins and we'll get pumpkin pie and we'll ride in the in the the hayride. the hayride and we'll we'll do the, the corn maze and all that so i get very excited about this as well and just you know, hyde park is a wonderful place to be in the fall so it, that's very enjoyable i agree Though I left the house this morning and uh, was under the impression it was close to 70 degrees. And by the time I walked about a block, uh, it's about a two block walk to the recording studio here from from where the friary is. Uh, it felt like it dropped 20 degrees and the wind is crazy. So uh, yesterday was 85. Today yeah. it's it's about it's feeling gonna be, 50. It's going to be in the 50s. <laughs> yeah. And that's, you know, welcome the, to Chicago. <laughs> what they say about Chicago is if you don't like the weather, just wait about 15 minutes and it'll be fine. Oh, oh the, my impression was if you don't like the weather, wait about 15 minutes, it'll be worse. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Glass half empty over here. I'm glad that we're laughing because as we're taping this, it's also been just a tremendous week of ups and downs emotionally. A lot of our listeners, I'm sure, have been paying attention to uh, during the time of this taping was last week's events around the Kavanaugh hearings. It'll when By the time this airs, it'll be two weeks ago. By the time that you're hearing this, it'll be two weeks hence. But our bet is that it'll still be current news as this as this episode is going out. But, you know, as as our listeners are where Brett Kavanaugh is undergoing a process of possibly being confirmed to the Supreme Court under several clouds of accusation. And for us, I mean, you know, regardless of how it turns out, I think the important thing to think about and talk about for a moment, at least, is the fact that, you know, this has been a tremendously triggering moment for a number of different types of populations, whether you are a person who is female and has had to survive sexual aggression or any kind of sexual assault, whether you are uh, a male who has gone through some kind of sexual assault or whether you are a male who is struggling with your own history of having dicey things in your past. All of those are fair game for kind of having this past week 
uh, bringing up a lot of issues that need to be thought about and processed and discussed. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I, regardless of the, the particular context, I, I, I do think that there are bigger issues that are being unsurfaced here and that are really tapping into realities that have gone unspoken. So, you know, in our conversation with Dr. Carmen Neca Fernandez, we, we talk about, you know, the, the unaddressed history, our collective history in the United States of not coming to adequate acknowledgement and, and naming and processing and, and perhaps beginning reconciliation around things like genocide and racism and colonialization. I, I think this is something like that is happening now too, that the complexity, the reality that for, for many people, at least in the gender dynamic, um, as it plays out, that women know and live day in and day out that men, because of, you know, the technical term would be male privilege, either don't have access to, don't see, don't recognize or don't wish to recognize. It was interesting. I was having a conversation with a very close friend of mine, um, a fellow theologian, um, who, who, as a woman, was sharing some of what we were talking about now, some of the experiences of the last week. And, and she was sharing with me an article that appeared in the Washington Post, I believe it was the Washington Post, by a columnist who was talking about, you know, to the dads and brothers out there who don't hear about the sexual assault or rape or other forms of violence against your daughters, sisters, wives, or mothers, I hear about them. And she talked about actually something, un I don't want to say unique, but it was a new take about a truth that has been lost, I think, in the kind of desire to make things simple and black and white. And, and basically the gist of, of, of the piece was to say, one of the reasons that even well-meaning, trusted, loved, cared for, and and supportive allies um, who are men in the lives of women don't – the reason why a lot of women may not share these experiences with them is partly because of the socialization of women to be protectors and, and to not bother and not burden men to make their lives difficult, the fear of being perceived differently, the fear of letting down a father or a husband or a son or something like this or a brother or a close friend. And so, you know, basically the, the takeaway is, you know, especially for men to remember that just because, you know, you haven't heard about this doesn't mean you don't know people. In fact, I, I feel confident saying 100% of men in the United States knows women who who suffer the effects of this because disturbingly and sadly it affects because of the socialization the dynamics of patriarchal society and so forth it affects 100% of women that's in another layer that's really important and, and I'm grateful that it's being named but it's also very heavy it's deeply troubling and it highlights double and triple binds that women are found in you know we'll talk in in the later part of this episode about intersectionality and and we can think of double and triple and quadruple binds of what it is for instance to be uh, a latina a, a woman who comes from a latino context who and then that's a double bind and then we might talk about a latino woman who identifies as queer you know or lesbian well now you got a triple bind of of oppression and and all these moving parts and and i think that's one of the things that as painful as it is right now, and it needs, I don't know that it needs to be, but it needs to be surfaced, where it leads us, I hope positively, is recognizing the complexity of the world in which we live and to also say by naming these realities that oftentimes get normalized. You know, women don't share even to people that they trust and love, especially men, 
for a lot of reasons because their experience sometimes is just, well, this is what it's like to be a woman. I think particularly in the spirit of Christianity, in the spirit of Catholic theology, you know, we are people of hope. We are people of resurrection. And, and what that presents to us, I like to believe, is that we can imagine another world, <laughs> but we got to do the hard work. You know, you use this language of on occasion of like this the kind of willful ignorance or selective memory and this kind of stuff. I think we need to surrender that. Well, and, and later in the episode, I'll actually mention that. The, I, I don't know the right term for it, but one of the ways that I've described it is strategic ignorance. And that's people who have power or privilege intentionally or, or maybe sometimes unintentionally being given not only knowledge, but strategic gaps in knowledge that blank out complexity or the kind of stories that you're talking about of these double and triple binds, because we can think about a person in a triple bind, as you said, we can then also add on maybe they come from a mixed racial background, as we're going to hear many people in the Caribbean diaspora experience. So all of those involve class and race and gender identity and economic structure. All of those aspects can create incredibly complex situations for people, which is why, once again, Having a privileged white man coming from a kind of prep school fraternity background being once again elevated to the highest court in the land is deeply problematic because when, when, for example, Justice Sotomayor went through this process, when she identified specifically as a wise Latina, she was castigated for that. But no one is going to notice the fact that Perhaps Brett Kavanaugh in identifying as he has in the hearings, a privileged white man, an angry privileged white man, that is somehow not something that is going to be brought up as disqualifying because of his social location and the obvious biases that come with that. But those biases in the 21st century are deeply problematic for an America whose, whose broad landscape of demographics is changing radically, where that is no longer the typical normative voice that should be identified with majority populations because it's no longer the majority population. Well, one of the things you bring up the anger and, and we saw this on display when he uh, testified, I think the thing that made me so upset, uh, deeply frustrated and angry myself was the fact that he clearly sees this as his kind of God-given right. And how, right, yeah. yeah. How dare you take this away from me. I've worked for this. I deserve this. It was a kind of privileged sense of entitlement. He's not, this is not a right. This is an incredible privilege and honor and responsibility. And the temperament alone, as people have commented, is really important. I, you know, I think the, the thing that I've seen a lot of pundits and, and, uh, various social media trolls and others talk about, um, some with greater or lesser seriousness is, well, you know, when I point out this sort of thing, they say, well, if you were falsely accused, you'd be angry too. And I said, no, I, I completely agree. I would be angry, but I think there are different ways to process this that reflect, you know, respect for the seriousness of the allegations and for the, a certain kind of decorum, a certain kind of processing that's necessary. And let me just add, I am a Roman Catholic priest and a Franciscan friar, a religious. I know men who have been falsely accused of things. And I know men who've been credibly accused of things. And, and I should say sisters too, men and women religious. I know the pain, not firsthand, thanks be to God, of, but I know from seeing my brothers, accompanying my brothers, 
people who have no, there, there are not credible accusations. Maybe it's people who, for whatever reason, sometimes it has to do with a lot of different things. Um, why people make uh, false accusations is, is a mystery to me. Um, but it does happen. And yes, I, I think that's a point of, of anger. Uh, there can be a personal sense of anger, but what was put on display wasn't wasn't a righteous sense of anger arising from a false accusation. It was anger rooted in the fact that he felt he was owed something and that it was being taken away from him. And how dare anyone deign to do that? So in addition to that kind of self-righteous sense of entitlement that surfaced in the form of anger, the other thing that's deeply disturbing is, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know that many people can know the the facticity of certain things in in what's being alleged but one has to be willing to listen to the experiences of somebody like Dr. Blasey Ford. I mean, that's the thing that's also upsetting is if this kind of desire to discredit her who, you know, in in her professional uh, life, in her personal life, in her presentation, in her testimony, it seemed to me, as it seemed to so many people, incredibly credible. Well, and, and so that is exactly on point because everything that we saw in this this indignation, and I'm not going to call it righteous indignation. It wasn't righteous. Yeah. But there was no indication ever of empathy or even acknowledgement of what Dr. Blasey Ford had gone through. It was as if her experience and what she was talking about and what she had spent hours being questioned about disappeared. And something that was raised by a friend on Facebook who is an attorney what credible attorney, what attorney worth their salt will go into any kind of courtroom disputation not having listened to the the testimony or the evidence that the other side has presented? And so when Brett Kavanaugh came and said basically, well, I didn't pay attention to anything that Dr. Blasey Ford had said, that was indicative on a number of levels. It was in, in this was the point that, that my attorney uh, friend made. It's not just indicative of a lack of empathy, but it's also indicative of sloppy legal practice. And so on a number of levels, it was problematic. And also just the fact that the legislators who were overseeing the conversation utilized a female prosecutor as a crutch. And then as soon as so that they didn't have to directly question Dr. Blasey Ford. And then as soon as Brett Kavanaugh came to the table suddenly they were willing to be shouty and, and angry just as much as he was. I mean, on so many levels, this was just showing a shoving aside of the experience of 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 Dr. Blasey Ford as a kind of an, an indicator of the wider shoving aside of women's experience generally in this case. Couldn't agree more. I, I was deeply upset by that. I just thought the whole thing was preposterous to, to bring in this prosecutor. And I feel very, very badly for her. I, I think she did a good job and she was doing what she does professionally and was put in a tight situation that was not of her creation. But the 11 white uh, Republican senator males that that were there still at that dais uh, hovering above this uh, prosecutor, uh, you know, Attorney Mitchell, uh, glaring down. I mean, it just, it showed uh, a certain sense of uh, the locus of patriarchal power. And I think they wanted to be perceived, as you rightly said, as being sensitive to the fact that they, they wanted to not misstep after the Anita Hill hearings of 1991. 
I think it totally backfired from my vantage point because what it looked like is they couldn't condescend. They wouldn't dare to step down to, to deal with, you know, quote, lady issues. They were not going to even engage, you know, uh, Dr. Ford. And I, it just came across as so preposterous that they didn't know what to do. And so they had to bring in another woman, quote, to do the woman's work. That's how I read it. And I found it deeply deeply disturbing and offensive. Um, nevertheless, I thought Dr. Blasley Ford did a, you know, did an extraordinary job, a courageous job talking about something, as many people have pointed out, was not the defining thing. I don't think she would say that, but, but a deeply traumatic and lifelong experience that, you know, can you, I just cannot imagine these people who accuse her of making this up or being part of some kind of conspiracy theory, like, you know, um, the completely unhinged senator from South Carolina, Lindsey Graham and so forth, is just so preposterous that somebody who was a very successful professional in her own field, who had a family and was, you know, clearly, you know, why would she risk as she has now having to relive those experiences before the entire world? the most vulnerable, most private things that she didn't even, for many reasons, couldn't bring herself, it seems, to share even with her husband until as recently as, you know, the last seven, six or seven years ago. So, I don't know. I just am so disgusted by by it all as as I, I see you are and, and so many uh, other folks are. So, you know, just again, a note to our listeners, I mean, we're having this conversation really on the eve of what Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has said would be the vote. You know, there's been this kind of abridged or allegedly uh, abridged FBI investigation. We don't know what's going to happen by the time this releases. Things um, will have certainly have changed. But in the meantime, gosh, what a frustration. Well, I'm as I've mentioned at various points in our conversations together, I have a background that involves uh, domestic violence and alcoholism and abuse. And so I have been very triggered this past week by just what I saw during the proceedings and all that the context around that. I also want to acknowledge that many of our listeners, I think, are similarly uh, situated in terms of their experiences and the triggering that this has been for them. So I, on behalf of Dan, I just want to say we're keeping you in our prayers and we're keeping this entire process in our prayers. And we ask that you do the same. This is a time not to lose sight of the gospel and not to lose sight of the one who is in control of history and the world. And even though we don't always see the mysterious ways in which it works, frustratingly enough, we have to trust that somehow God's hand is in this, despite the frustrations that we're feeling in the moment. Well said, David. Thank you. And and with that, uh, we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to The Francis Effect. I'm here with Dan Horan, and I'm David Dalton. and we'll be back in a moment with our guest, Professor Carmen Nanco-Fernandez. The Francis Effect is made possible in part by our wonderful supporters at Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod to find out about how you can join them. A couple of dollars a month really adds up, and we appreciate it. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash francisfxpod. Thank you.
Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Haran, and I'm here with David Dalt. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss popular events, culture, politics, all informed by our Catholic faith. As you know, we have done something special this season, season three of The Francis Effect, where we've dedicated the entire set of shows for the fall to uh, particular themes that relate to frustrations and tensions within the church. So far, we've taken a look at the sexual abuse crisis in the wake of the summer of 2018 revelations about former Cardinal McCarrick and the Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report. Last episode, we uh, had our, uh, Heidi Schlumpf, uh, the national correspondent for National Catholic Reporter, who was here to talk about women in the church. And we're really privileged today to have a guest with us, a colleague of mine from Catholic Theological Union, Dr. Carmen Nico Fernandez, who is professor of Hispanic theology and ministry and the director of the Hispanic theology and ministry program at CTU. She's also the author of Theologizing in a Spanglish, Context, Community, and Ministry. And she's the author of the forthcoming book, which is very exciting, called El Santo, Baseball and the Canonization of Roberto Clemente. And that's forthcoming from Mercer University Press. So, Carmen, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks, Dan. Thanks, Dave. Yeah, glad to have you. We're, we're really excited to have you. And because this is your first time joining us on the podcast, uh, many of our listeners may know you, may know your work, uh, may know you personally. But for those who don't, they might ask themselves, who is Carmen Nico Fernandez? Who are you? Depends on the day, Dan. Depends <laughs> on the day. <laughs> I'm a theological migrant worker. That's what I am. Oh, that's good. So yeah. I'm a Latino theologian, born and raised in the Bronx, New York. It's a big Yankees fan. Big Yankees fan. <laughs> <laughs> Studied in Washington, D.C. and spent many years there in teaching and in campus ministry. And then uh, work in Chicago. So I'm from New York. I live in D.C. and I work in Chicago, <laughs> basically following the crop of theological students and ministry students. That's that's really great. I mean, today we, we happen to be recording this particular episode on the Feast of St. Francis. And so, you know, Carmen has a bit of a, a Franciscan spirit, itinerant spirit. You know, you go to where the people are and you, you don't have like one central location. You're kind of uh, multi-polar, multi-located. You mentioned something about, you know, I, I know you best now as a professor of theology and ministry, somebody who trains theologians, trains ministers for the church and the world today. And it's very important. But and though you've done that for a long time, you mentioned, too, that you used to, you know, and, and still do in many ways, live in Washington and had other ministries in the church. Can you talk about how did you get involved in ministry? How did you get involved in education? What sorts of things have you done? I spent 18 years in Catholic high schools, most of those in boys Catholic high schools, and taught theology, biblical studies, ethics. Nothing is better than teaching ethics to 16-year-old high school boys, yeah. juniors campus ministry, both at the high school level and at the college level. And then CTU had an opening and I wound up following whatever store it was to Chicago and then have been here for the past 15 years, continuing the preparation of folks for ministry and ongoing theological studies. So The thing that you're probably best known for and, and is such a major contributor to in terms of theology and ministry is your work in Latino theology mm -hmm. and preparing people, especially for Hispanic ministry in the church, which is one of the reasons why we were so delighted to have you here. As we're exploring this season, a number of tensions and frustrations that Catholics 
folks in, in the church are, are feeling, are going through, are experiencing, one of the communities that surfaces as a, a group that is oftentimes not adequately heard, not adequately recognized, incorporated, whose voice may not be appreciated, are those Latino Catholics. And, and David and I would like to talk with you about that. But first, if I, if I can ask you something, just in terms of clarification of language for our listeners, oftentimes we hear... Uh, Latino, Latin American, Hispanic, Latino, Latinx. Um, do you have any, as, as a, a professional in this area, advice for how to make those distinctions? I think one of the, the gifts that, that comes out of uh, theologizing from Latino spaces is the, and it was Adam Sacidias, who's the famous mujerista theologian from uh, Cuban, who comes to the United States as an immigrant around the age of 18. And, and she had this, this sort of prophetic line that says, um, one of the greatest powers that people have is the ability to name themselves. And so when I see the assortment or the tapas bar of names, what it reflects is this understanding that we have a power to name ourselves. And, and each of those names is significant in its own way. But all of those names are, are um, at best umbrella terms. And they're umbrella terms that cover a, a, a complex and complicated set of communities that identify regionally, ethnically, familially. So some of the things like Latino and Latina, you know, you got Spanish is a, is a gendered language. So you see a, an impact there. And folks who are using it, part of its history is that it, it traces its roots to acknowledging a Latin American root or heritage to the person who, who identifies that way. Folks from some folks from Texas, for example, will identify as Tejano or Tejana, meaning that they're, you know, Mex usually Mexican Americans uh, born and raised in Texas and, and that's part of their heritage. Words like Chicano, Chicano, Chicanex or Chicanequis, uh, those terms also imply sort of political commitments and social commitments and have a whole history in social movements that come out of the United States. Well, uh, and this is what I really want to ask about. About is the connection of ethnicity or origin space to social space. So social movements, movements for liberation that are tied in specifically to originary spaces. And that seems in across the spectrum of Latino, Latino, Latinx, Chicano, Chicanx, there's that connectivity between where you come from and the language that you speak. And I've heard sometimes a distinction between sort of origin space and language space for understanding Latino, Latinx, and Chicano, etc. And maybe I'm wrong about that. You can correct me. But also this connection to a sense of social coherence and social connectedness across sort of across those origin differences. Does, I, I'm not quite sure exactly what I'm asking, but I'm, I'm kind of wanting to understand the way in which language and origin and that kind of social connection fit together in these movements. The way I understand it, and again, coming from a theological background, mm -hmm. is that I see it in terms of a, a something that biblical scholars especially would be familiar with, which is the term social location. And in Latino theologizing, and you even see it sometimes in culture studies as well, is this whole rootedness in that one is influenced by multiple sectors of one's life. Mm. One is rooted in and that all of those different influences and sectors are operative in how we view the world and shape perspectives. So there's a profound respect for particularity. 
but it's a it's a particularity that does not preclude the fact that there's points of intersections. So if you look at under the general umbrellas, whether the umbrellas Latino, Latina, Hispanic, Latinx, fall different particularities of how one understands one's Latinidad, Hispanidad. And some of them, I think like Latin, Latinx or in Latinx with the X in Espanol or for the plural, you, you have folks making a stand saying uh, terms like Latino, Latina and Latino are excluding whole groups of people and they're challenging things like gender polarities <laughs> and they're talking about inclusion issues. And then yet you also have people saying, well, the X feels like I'm being X'd out, but these are part of the lively conversations. And if you respect people's power to name themselves and you respect the fact that people are always coming out of locations. So, so when I write, I mean, I'm, I'm just disruptive and a troublemaker sometimes, but when I <laughs> so write, is Jesus. <laughs> I don't know if I'm Jesus, but, but I write the arroba, which is the at sign, but I'm not seeing it as an O and an A. I see it as just a challenge to gender polarities. And then I put the acute accent on top of it. And the reason I do that is because it's social, and that is, is an indication of social location. It, it comes out of the tech world. It comes out of URL, you know, it's part of URLs. It's, it's, it's saying, so when I send a, an email, you know, I'm Dan Haran at CTU. Well, I have a different personality than Dan Haran at Hotmail or Dan Haran. <laughs> Does that so, server still exist? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But so, so at some level, what I say is that, so for me, I will use that and then it drives people crazy. I go, how do you pronounce that? I said, that. Latino, Latin However, it, it it's it's the it's the focus on the location. And I guess that's how I understand it. You just put your finger on so many things that I'm curious about. In one particular way, these cultures have very well-defined gender roles. They've got histories of kind of machismo culture, oftentimes. But what you're bringing in is also this notion of fluidity, this notion of self-naming. And in everything that you said, there's also this notion of intersectionality, this notion of, you know, there's multiple ways that I can be identified and there's multiple ways that I can name myself within this culture. And that fluidity is a challenge to that traditional, and I'm scare quoting traditional here, to that traditional way of understanding, you know, the roles of gender, the roles of social class, I would imagine, the roles of, of hierarchical location in terms of where you come from. And so I'm, I'm fascinated by the fact that you've identified yourself in this conversation, first of all, as a theological migrant worker, and now you say you're always a troublemaker. I like how you're positioning yourself in this conversation, because I think that that's exactly the point that Latino, Latinx, Latino Catholicism is finding itself in the church. It's got very traditional inheritances, but now you have generations that are challenging that and are naming themselves in different ways. And that's an interesting place to kind of think about. And I think it's a good place actually for us to pick up with um, naming some of these tensions and frustrations in the church and talking about naming who gets to determine whose title, location, name, et cetera. And, and so picking up on a couple of things that are happening right now in the U.S. context in particular, from the church perspective, we've just celebrated the Aquentro, which is this, it was the fifth gathering of Latino Catholics. And for the sake, in the spirit of this conversation on naming, I think it's worthwhile for us to agree that in, in saying Latino, we're not trying to exclude those who don't confirm to binary uh, gender identities and so forth, but just for expediency's sake, um, as a placeholder for all these particularities, it's also, you know, more broadly culturally Hispanic Heritage Month that we're still in. And as we look to later in the month uh, in the global church, we have the canonization, the long overdue canonization of Archbishop Oscar Romero. So 
I guess, Carmen, maybe a, a way to begin here would be to ask, you know, in your work, in your experience, and here, Dave and I are not certainly not asking you, obviously, to speak for a total community anyway. That's good because I can't. <laughs> you can't. No, none of us can, right? That's And that's a really important starting point. But you do, you, you commit your professional and your ministerial work to various communities that identify as Latino or Hispanic. And, and so, you know, my question is, you know, what do you see and what do you hear? What do you experience about Latino people in the church today? That's a broad question. It's like where to begin. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm going to begin with today. And the reason being is that there has long been the misunderstanding that Latinos in the church are a brand new phenomenon that are primarily the product of migrations or immigrations or, or, or waves of migrations. And in reality, as I tell my students, uh, the Latino presence, for better or for worse, born out of encuentro as well as born out of clashing and, and violence. Uh, Luis Rivera Pagan calls it the, um, the violent evangelization, or Justo Gonzalez calls it a non-innocent history. For better or for worse, uh, it begins in 1493 when Colón sets foot in what is now Puerto Rico, which he names actually the island San Juan. And so that's when it begins, because as long as Puerto Rico remains part of the constellation of U.S. colonies, that is the beginning of the Latino Catholic presence uh, and in all of its hybridity and permutations and, and, and the goods it has done, that have been part of that inheritance, as well as the pain and the suffering that have come along with it is 1493. And it's San Juan and it's not Baltimore mm. and it's not Bardstown. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think that that's an important piece. And if it's not for the church and the, the, the Bishop of Chiapas in Mexico, and if it's not for money... You're talking about Bartolome de las Casas, in this no, case? Even no, no. before him. Before, uh, in, in, in the 1700s, if it's not for the Bishop of Chiapas in Mexico, if it's not for Spanish money from the Spanish crown, and if it's not for traitors, uh, traitors, not traitors, <laughs> uh, traitors and others and, and, and diplomats... The church, the first churches in the first church in New York is built off of money oh, from I those see. donations. Gotcha. So, so, you know, we, we sit here and we talk about this brand new and often depicted as, you know, poor folk when it's a complicated history with, with complex origins. You know, typically folks think about, you know, Thanksgiving, which will be coming up in, in a month. Well, the first Thanksgiving is actually like in 1513 and it was a mess, a Eucharist celebrated in Florida. Amen. So, yeah, these, so these are the kinds of pieces that, you know, aren't part of the histories of what we're taught in school in the United States. And so I think that that's part of the challenge. And I'm not the first to say this. Others have been saying this over and over and over again. And you mentioned the Encuentros. Well, the Encuentros began almost 50 years ago. It's 1972. And, and we're acting like it's, it's a brand new experience to pull together, you know, Latino Catholics and bishops. You have two in the 1970s. You have one in the 1980s. You have none in the 90s. And then all of a sudden in the 2000s, you have everybody decides it's time for the Hallmark Encuentro, which is let's bring everybody together because Latinoas are now big enough to, you know, to welcome others into the church. Well, well, you can only do that if you truly have the and, and in this sense, I'm using the term power and I use it very carefully. All right. If you have the power or the ability to do that. And quite frankly, I think Latinos, we remain the marginalized majority of the church. Well, I wanted to pick up on that because the the Pew uh, Research Center, you know, seven years ago now did a landmark 
wide spectrum study of the changing demographics of religion in the United States. And one of the things that they noticed is while Protestants were declining, Catholic numbers were staying the same, but not because Caucasian Anglo-Catholics were staying in the church, but instead in America, Caucasian Anglo-Catholics were leaving the church and they were being replaced by Latino, Latino Catholics. The Catholic Church has yet to grapple with that reality as well in terms of what you just said, the minority majority. They're still treated as invisible oftentimes or not noted or not acknowledged in terms of not only the not only the, the, the power, and I'm going to use that carefully too, but the staying power of the church to the extent that, that the church in America, the Catholic church has been able to sort of hold the line in terms of its numbers and I would imagine its revenues. That's largely due to immigrant members who have come in and who have joined the church. Well, the majority right now of Latinos are, are U.S. born. Okay. So, you know, that's another part of the tension. Everybody treats it that the, the growing majority of folks are bilingual. And, um, depending on the generations one might be, increasingly some, the language of dominance is, is slowly becoming English for better and, and sadly for worse too. I mean, I, I tend to say that bilinguality and not losing one's languages of, of any kind would be the, 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 the optimum or the treasure to keep. That's what one sees. One sees that this complicated community is being addressed as if it is a monolingual, brand new, community that's a supplicant community. And that sadly remains. And just to give an example, so that that when we have like theological education, we're always talking about the preparation of ministers. It's, it's, I've, 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 I've used this expression before that I've borrowed from others, which is it's this mentality of throwing a serape on it, which means it's like, okay, if we come in and we sing a couple of songs and we wheel in with, you know, the, the version du jour, then we've got not the mix French in there, but, <laughs> but, but then we've taken care. Or if we're speaking Spanish, then it's good. It doesn't matter where we come from. And I think that that's sort of what can sometimes pass in our institutions as preparation for ministry. There's this whole ignoring of centuries of history and theologizing that has arisen from across the, the, the global Hispanidad, but also uh, of the theologizing of, of Latinos within the context of the United States, which is very different than, than context in Latin America. And that that's, you know, just taking Karl Rahner and putting him in Spanish and passing him on is not doing theology Latinamente. And the whole notion that, you know, you can't prepare ministry. In, in Latino world, it's like, Teología y pastoral operates en en de conjunto. In other words, the theology and the ministry are inseparable. And that they are derived in community, so en conjunto, and they are the product of community, de conjunto, and these different sorts of sets of communities. So if you're truly going to be preparing people for ministry in the church, then you have to understand and respect and find ways of communicating and articulating that, that rich and diverse body of theologizing that has been arising from within our communities and for generations. Um, so I think that's part of a tension to, like, you know, just, like I say, 
toss the serape on it and everything will be okay. <laughs> well, in the, in the same spirit, I mean, you're talking about, and it just resonates with me because yesterday in my uh, fundamental theology course at mm-hmm. CTU, one of the things, you know, I'm trying to get our students to see, and this is every time, this is now, I think the fifth or sixth time I've taught this class and, and, you know, to move from this understanding that for so long the church has, and by church here, I mean the universal church and magisterial uh, teaching. So it's, it's, it's coming down from a select bunch of people who exercise authority in the church or power in the ecclesiastical sense who tend to be white European male or at least white European educated folk. And I shared this line that um, another great Latino theologian, Orlando Espin, says very regularly in his writings that I've really come to appreciate that I think summarizes exactly the point you're naming that there's no such thing as a universal experience, but that everybody's experience is universal relevance. And for me, that hits home exactly this point. You know, it's it's not that sometimes you have, you know, uh, white or, or Anglo, particularly men seminarians, male seminarians in the context who hear, uh, you know, the experiences of, of folks who are unlike them, whether it's gender, race, nation of origin, language of origin, whatever it may be. And they feel like, well, you're trying to erase us or something like this. And we've seen that play out in the civil sphere in the United States, too, um, with the increasing rise of, you know, these hate groups and, and that sort of thing. We saw that in Charlottesville and so forth. Um, but one of the things that I think is really important is to realize, no, that's not it. It's it's what Espin says, which is that your experience has relevance for other people in the, in the particularity of a, a Latina's experience or a Latino's experience or a Vietnamese person's experience. Their experience of God and their experience of faith has relevance for us. And that gets overlooked. I just want to follow up on something that you said, too, about the training of, of ministers and, and uh, people going on for further theological education in the U.S. context. And, and that's so important because, you know, this idea of tokenism or that if we just have a Spanish mass, then our parish is multicultural. And even the idea of multicultural is problematic because you have these different silos. Right. And something that, you know, I know that you've you've made really a, a strong point about um, pedagogically and professionally is no, you know, actually we need to be training those preparing for Latino or Hispanic ministry in English, that, that it's not enough just to kind of train people in Spanish. I don't know if you can say more about that. Um, yeah, I mean, I, like I said, the ideal, I think, is, is bilinguality because it just makes us as communities just more adept in dealing with a, a globalized, interconnected world today. So and I think it's the saddest thing in the United States is is how many people from all across the world have to sacrifice their their languages and their home tongues and, and, and other languages, you know, for the for the gift of assimilation. So I think that that's that's sort of challenging. But in terms of the preparation for ministry, I think then this is where the young people really complicate things. Because again, depending generationally, when one would have come to the United States or how long one's people have been in the United States, and that could be before it was the United States. <laughs> so that, that complicates things in terms of people's language abilities. Folks forget that some parents in different parts of the United States purposely did not teach their children Spanish so they didn't get beat up on the way to school every day. And and this is really a painful subject that I don't know people truly get when they're talking about language and the Spanish language with Latinos and Latinas. It can be a very painful and personal subject precisely because it's connected to profound loss. 
And I know for myself, I mean, I, I, nobody would know it, but I'm a native Spanish speaker. That was my first language because that's just the first language my mother decided to, to give me. Even though I'm born in the U.S., she's born in the U.S., but it's the only language I would be able to communicate with my abuela would be in Spanish. But for me, the loss of Spanish is connected to the death of my grandmother. And, and when I've talked with other folks and other Latinos and I say, you know, I, I want to get the words out, but they get stuck. It, and, and others will say, yes, they get stuck right here. And they bring tears to your eyes when you try to say things. And the frustration is that you, you want to speak, you can understand, but you can't. And then school tells you, at least when I was going through school, and some places still reinforce this, that Spanish is not an academic language. That Spanish is a romantic language, it's a pastoral language. So in my day, we were told you had to take French in high school if you wanted to go to college. So now I have terrible French, Spanish stuck in my throat, <laughs> and uh, my English is um, apparently I'm coded in Spanish because I apparently write English in a Spanish pattern. That tells you, you know, how much a power your first language has. And so those kinds of pains people don't realize who lost the language in school, who had the language, the parents protecting them by not teaching language. You know, now my mom, as she, as she ages, her memory, um, you know, I call it she has alternate remembering, but she's a, she's a native Spanish speaker. So she's speaking Spanish and she, she has her own Spanglishes now. And, you know, trying to hope that I don't mess up a message that my mother's trying to tell me at the age of 94. So I think that that part of pain in language is not really understood. And folks who are not Latinos who learn Spanish have to be careful when, when they're entering our communities, too, to recognize that that pain is going on. Mm -hmm. You see that sometimes in these younger generations. So they may go to mass in Spanish and not understand anything that's going on. But it's more comfortable than going to mass in English. But... Spanglish and Spanglish and all these other mixed languages, I see as resistance. And I see those as the forms of trying to claim back what's lost and then also trying to be disruptive to remind folks that we're here and this country and its language, that this country's English is built on multiple languages. And you can't speak Spanish without Arabic, and you can't <laughs> speak Spanish without Hebrew, and you can't speak Spanish without words from West Africa. So at, at some point, just that Latinos and our acquisition of language complicates how we understand monolinguality, because I don't really think there's such a thing. So we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back in just a moment. I'm here with Dan Haran and Carmen Nenko Fernandez, and you're listening to The Francis Effect. Hello, this is David, uh, outside the podcast realm for the moment, just talking to you in advertising land. If you're enjoying the conversation that we're having, I want to make sure that you're aware that I do another show as well called Things Not Seen, Conversations About Culture and Faith. That's a weekly show that's been on since 2011, and we've talked to some amazing guests. It's basically a long-form interview where we get a chance to talk about how faith animates a person's life. We talk to authors and politicians and tastemakers and musicians, any kinds of folks that have some sort of faith component to their lives. So I'd love it if you get if you gave that a chance, too, and gave that a listen. That's at thingsnotseenradio.com. That's thingsnotseenradio.com. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to The Francis Effect. My name is David Dalt. I'm here with my friend Dan Haran, who's a Franciscan friar. We're talking today with Carmen Nanco Fernandez about Latino, Latinoa, Latinx issues in the Catholic Church in the 21st century. 
So in the earlier segment, you mentioned Ada Maria Asasi Diaz, and I wanted to come back to her for a moment because when I was a professor of Catholic studies down south, we invited her to come and speak. And this was just after she had been involved in a marriage that involved a same-sex couple. And so there was someone in our diocese who got wind of that. And then she was through the weird machinations that happen in a diocese. She was disinvited by the bishop, but not by the bishop. She was disinvited in the name of the bishop. And she and basically we had to tell her not to come and speak. And she spoke at an alternate location. There's a lot of politics there. There's a lot of there's and, and without rehearsing a lot of it, um, I'm just aware that, you know, when we come to the 21st century and the Catholic Church, we're dealing with a lot of issues. We're dealing with patriarchy. We're dealing with cis het normativity. And we're dealing with language and the marginalization of certain voices within the church. And how do theologians in the 21st century, particularly theologians that are coming from places of disturbance, as you have identified yourself as wanting to do, how do you navigate that? And how do you navigate that kind of sometimes outright hostility to the attempt to bring messages of liberation to communities, whether they want to hear it or not? That's a big one. I think for those of us, at least in the United States, who choose to identify as Latino theologians, because it is a choice that folks make, there is a realization and a commitment to that which is larger than ourselves. And so when we theologize, there's always this sense that what we're doing is arising somehow from the ground or in or from daily lived experiences which have their particularity so in that sense uh, in, in latino theologies i think the way it, it gets handled is that our locus theologicus or theologian side to be that's proper right would be um local to the animal, which is lived daily experience and in there's no such thing as common lived daily experience, and there's no such thing as one take on lived experience, and there's no way to get a handle on it. So the best any single one of us does is to identify this piece of lo cotidiano, identify how we're going to interrogate it or investigate it, and then from that place, our place or respective places, put that out there. And it could be disruptive, it could be embraced, and it could be rejected, or it could wind up happening what happens to Aquinas, you're hated today and you're a saint 50 years from now. So I think in that sense, it's being a theologian is, is risky business. And when you're a theologian who articulates a particularity, it becomes even riskier business if that particularity is especially experienced within the wider context of the academy and the church as being Nothing because of its particularity. Or it's like, that's nice, but you're just for a particular agenda. And, you know, Guizueta was talking about that back in the 80s and the 90s. And the whole point is, you know, it goes back to something you said earlier, Dan. It's like, we're not just talking to ourselves. And there's something valuable coming from these ways of thinking about what it means to engage the divine, what it means to where to find the divine, how, how to understand what Jesus the Christ even means, you know, how to navigate relationships with each other, with our enemies, with creation. So, I mean, those are all theological sorts of questions that 
in the case of Latino theologizing, Latino biblical studies, begins on the ground with the notion that we're situated, though that situatedness is fluid. And that situatedness, if I heard you earlier in the in the segment before, Dan, it's it's not universal, but it's got universal relevance. It can be instructive, even though it comes from a place of particularity. Right. And I think like folks like um, Espin and Segovia and others make real careful are careful to say there's a difference between universal, as Dan has used it, and universalizing. Yes. And Latino theologies do not understand themselves, for the most part, as universalizing. Which, which is really, you know, going back to uh, what, you, what you said earlier, Carmen, about like the Latino Catholic experience, for better and for ill, tied to the colonialization mm-hmm. uh, enterprise of the, of the Spanish Church and, and Western Europe coming into the quote unquote New World, you know, and there are people living here for tens of thousands of years. It wasn't new to them. It nevertheless, you know, shows. The longstanding shadow side, we might say, of the church's social polity, its its engagement with the world, and and I don't, I, I think David and I have talked in in previous seasons about structural and systemic racism in the United States, and the kind of as as people have said before, you know, numerous uh, authors and activists have talked about racism and genocide as America's quote original sin, and it affect, just as much as it affects people in the African diaspora or, or Af- African descent descended communities, it's so true as well with Latino communities too in the U.S. As, as much as it is Native American communities or indigenous peoples in Central, North, South America. And I think it strikes me anyways that that's one of the great continuing kind of structural sins of the church that we see play out in what you're describing. The othering, the silencing, the particularity is considered insignificant or at best the token. And yet, the mechanisms that make that possible is that we have not reckoned as a church or as a broader society with that colonial oppression, with that violence, as you as you put it. I think, I don't know, I'd be interested to hear what you have to say. It strikes me as like with with racism as such when it comes to, um, you know, people of African descent in particular, it's 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 so complicated. People would rather just pretend it doesn't exist. And by people, I often mean people who look like David and me, <laughs> white men who have the privilege, have the ability to just say, well, I, I don't have to worry about this. And then and coincidentally, occupy most of the positions of power and authority in the church and world. <laughs> yeah, we privilege amnesia, I, I think, oftentimes in, in, in church and in society as a nation and in our educational systems. And part of it is that we always want to, there's always this notion of, of we, we got to move beyond this. We have to move beyond this. We well, can't move beyond this if you don't know what this is in all of its complications. And, you know, at, at some point, the, the, the historical complexities need to be just pulled out, examined, dealt with, and revisited. And that doesn't stop us from moving forward, but but it causes us to begin to see that that there are definitely spaces we have not attended to that have continued to impact how we act with each other. And you know, racialization is is, is part of the Latino stories. In some sense, it's the it's what challenges because folks do not understand how somebody like Roberto Clemente is a Latino because he truly looks like he could be African American or African diasporic or an indigenous person or uh, so all across and then. And the other the, the, sort of the hidden stories, too, is the connections between Latinidad and Asia, mm-hmm. especially to the Philippines. And, you know, the, the first Asians often come besides the indigenous people of the Americas who, you know, again, tracing backwards in time. But when you're looking um, from the Philippines, 
Um, there, there were sailors on Spanish galleons that jumped ship in the 1500s, and they stay in Mexico. And when you look at the, the hybrid complicated mess that was España in 1492, you're talking about a, a, a land that has just the Reconquista of, with you know, the retaking of Granada. And then really literally days before Colón takes off, you have Jews and Muslims being expelled. And you have Jews and Muslims being on the boats that come across <laughs> and you have Jewish communities. And so you have all of this coming, all of that sort of interreligious, crazy complexity that marked Spain coming into the new world. So at the exact moment they're trying to decrease their diversity, they now encounter new peoples and have a whole new series of differences that they have to navigate and often don't navigate well. And that's part of our inheritance religiously, racially. Uh, it, it can't be escaped. But, but most folks just want to see it's like, here's Spain. It's a white country that sends white people <laughs> to take over an indigenous land of a mono-indigenous people. And then bring in just Africans as slaves and then say, then, okay, we've, we've, that they scared the story. But it's not. It's a complicated story. And if we stick to the simple narrative, then we're not going to undo some of the perceptions, I think, that, that stop us today. And what you're speaking about is, and I, I don't know the proper term for this, but I've often heard it referred to or I've tried to refer to it as kind of strategic ignorance. So we don't just teach knowledge, but we also, our institutions teach gaps in knowledge where we, we simplify narratives, we simplify stories and histories, and we make kind of white hats and black hats, good guys and bad guys. And we tend to override the deep complexity of origin and the deep complexity of, of race. So I, I work with a, a woman named Lisa Sharon Harper who comes out of the diaspora Caribbean culture. And so if you would look at her, she would look African American, but she has, she has Latino Caribbean culture as part of what is going on. And, you know, she's constantly bringing people into the orbit of my experience that are part of that Caribbean culture that include, and I'm so glad you mentioned it, Chinese who are Cubans, who are Cubans. Yeah, exactly. And, and those, those connections, white America does not register those on the radar. And it's so important to keep reminding ourselves that we have gaps in our knowledge. We have been taught ignorance in our schooling. We've been taught to not notice things. We've been taught to have strategic blindnesses and we need to unlearn those blindnesses. Yeah, but, or, or to fear complexity. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and this is where, you know, again, it, I think the rhetoric that gets used in, in civil discourse, but also in, in theological context in the academy and in classrooms is you use the I word intersectionality and people go, oh, political correctness. Oh, blah, blah, blah. But the truth is, it's, it's, it's a matter of fact. You know, it's interesting that these DNA tests have become so popular now. I keep hearing celebrities are doing and people are talking about this and they're discovering their mixed heritage, as it were. And it's interesting how, as, as you rightly say, David, that, you know, as you put it, white America has been in the moral category, vincibly ignorant. It's not justifiable ignorance. It's actually you're complicit, you're culpable from a Christian, from a Catholic perspective for your participating in this racialization and then, you know, the oppression that is is the one side of the coin to the supremacy and privilege that you benefit from. So it's like, well, wait a minute, how come nobody, you know, if you're 
Irish and Welsh and Spanish and British and German, you're white. <laughs> but if you're of Chinese descent and you're of indigenous, you know, Central American descent and you're Cuban and you have some Spanish heritage or something like this, then you're what? <laughs> you know, you're, you're boxed into you're a, a person of color. You're a person of color. Yeah. And so I, I think, you know, it just strikes me that this complexity is really important. I guess kind of bringing it back to the, uh, to the classroom, to the pastoral experience and practice. I know, Carmen, we've, we've talked to you. You do such tremendous work in, in, um, offering workshops and, and, you know, you, you were sharing that just very recently. You were with some of my own brothers who are in, engaged with uh, Latino and Hispanic ministry, uh, Franciscans on the East Coast. And so, you know, I'm curious, uh, maybe you could share a little bit about what are some basic steps? I mean, if people are like, all right, where do we begin with this? Acknowledging too, I should say, because I think it's really important, as, I, as I've said in other contexts, it's not Latino a person's and folks' responsibility to tell white people, you know, to instruct us, as David was just saying, it's it's incumbent on us to learn and and, and to recognize there are other ways of learning, you know, decolonial epistemologies that it's 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 our responsibility. But for those who are interested, do you have thoughts about that? What does pastoral ministry look like? Where do we begin, et cetera? Okay, I think the first thing we need to do is stop romanticizing stuff, and that even this whole excitement about people finding out that there are all these different cultures. That's, that's wonderful. And so how do you commit to the struggles of the sides of you that part, whose, whose ancestors participated and who people who still are descendant and may not be as happily mixed or as able to afford a DNA test? Um, how are you connected to their struggles? So it, it could be one thing to be something even biologically, genetically. It's another thing is how do you connect to the, the struggles of those communities and to, on the ground and in, and in real time. So I think that, you know, even something like Hispanic Heritage Month or Latino Heritage Month, we, we have a Heritage Month for everything where we tend to focus on comida y celebration. So food and all of our achievements, and then we can move on because look how far we've all come. And I Who think, doesn't love a burrito, you'll it, hear. You know, it's like this sort of thing. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So it's like... So I think at some at some point we need to sort of get on beyond the you know the the Chicago World's Fair of the turn of the century the turn of the 20th century where everything was on the midway and we all got to see the different cultures um you know the time is over for that and I think so deromanticization and realizing that you know sometimes I think that that we dehumanizing people we dehumanize people by taking away their capacity to sin so we just romanticize folk as opposed to acknowledging that, that people are complicated. In terms of dealing with ministry, one of the first lessons is to realize this is a complex community and all communities are not the same. And that if one is accompanying communities of Latinoas, one needs to know who that community one is accompanying is. So, you, you know, you can't just say, OK, look, there's no Guadalupe statue here. Let's wheel her in. And you find out you're like, in the, you know, the Puerto Rican community and it's not Ponce. So a at some level, that has to take awareness, you know, that, that there are different Spanishes. There are different popular practices. You know, all Mexicanos do not understand the, the days of the dead. Mm -hmm. it, so those kinds of realities. So we, we can't make those assumptions. The other thing, and I think that, you know, in, in, in keeping with um, infidelity to the title of your podcast, The Francis Effect, what happens, I, I like to say that Francis has been Latinoized. 
And it happened the day he he come, came into the United States. And we just all watched and said, oh, pobrecito, you're one of us now, because watch what they did. And you got the, the constant talking heads, whether it was certain bishops who liked the media, or if it was, you know, the, the, the media that didn't really know Catholic things, let alone Latin American or Latino things, sat there and went, oh, look, he's so pastoral. And then it's a, and then there was Benedict and he was the brains. Mm. <laughs> he was the theologian. But, but Francis is so pastoral. And you just, and Latino has sat there, we sat there going, really? Do you understand how theological you have to be in order to make sense <laughs> at a level that's not, that's not a, a, an academic level? I said, so, so that whole dichotomy between pastoral and theological, that's got to go. And I think that's what also keeps our communities down because you think you just stick somebody in a regular old classroom, throw a couple of the whatever books at them in Spanish, and then we've covered our bases. So that, that dichotomy needs to end in theological education. The other problem that we have, too, is the reality that the Catholic Church today, there's a, the, the disproportionate ratio between the number of Latino Catholics, especially when you're talking under the age of 30, and Catholic leadership that's Latino in theological education and in leadership positions in church and ministry is just abysmal. Just to give you the example from our, our shared culture, the three of us in, in, in education, in Association of Theological Schools that, um, that, do, that does account that the schools that train people for theology and ministry, roughly 4 to 4.5% of the professors are Latinos or Latinas. That's it. Which means the majority of people who are being prepared to serve the church, which including not just Hispanic ministries, but it is the church, are being trained by non-Latinos, non-Latinas, most of whom do not know the difference between U.S. Latino theologies and Latin American theologies. Let alone the fact that there's various liberation theology threads in Latin America. So, so you put all that together and then the question becomes is, so who's training? Mm -hmm. And how are we creating pipelines for our young Latinos and Latinas, Latinx, who want to go on? Because unless that education is there, it, it, there's, there's no chance for advancement. We all know that. So how are we making the financial investment in people's preparation for theology and ministry. And unless we prepare people for both pastoral ministry and theology to be professors, those numbers are not going to change in higher education. And I want to see where's the financial investment from our churches in that? Where's the financial investment from our Catholic schools in that? And then where are the teachers in the classroom? And uh, where are the Latino faculty? CTU has been blessed for a very long time to have made that kind of a commitment, but that's not the reality. We, we are inspired into vocations when we see our names and our faces and say, oh, I can do that too. So I was uh, hearing a, a talk by a poet by the name of Emily Joy last week. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that she was saying, because she gets asked the same kind of question about patriarchy issues, and she said a lot of times what she gets asked is, you know, what what do we need to do by well-meaning progressives? And she says what they want is a kind of behavior modification response. But uh -huh. instead, what she advocates is divestment. And I heard that at the tail end of what you're saying, not just investment in these communities, but divestment from the power structures and from the continuance of those power structures that has been contained for so long. And, yeah. And the realization that once you do that, it's going to change your community. And so we don't want the community change. So if, if the, the majority of Latino, if the majority of the Catholic Church in the United States is going to be Latino 
and it already is at certain ages, then that means the Catholic Church in the United States must also change business as usual. And the question is, what does that mean? And and I think the biggest critique of the Encuentro, this Encuentro, the fifth Encuentro, was that it did not really reflect that, and they weren't really hearing what the young people were saying, because quite frankly, the bishops needed to take off their VIP tags. And if they truly understood what was going on, then they needed to be in shirt sleeves, in light of what was going on in the church right now, because there are no VIPs. And that is, I think, and women, absent. Cecilia Gonzalez-Andrew did a wonderful piece that appears in America, and she talks about this. So, you know, what happened at the Encuentro was it was overmanaged by the USCCB. And where were these grassroots voices, and how are they going to be intended to? And if Fifth Encuentro is going to have the kind of power it needs to have, then this encuentro should not have looked like 1972. Mm. It should have been the bishops listening and other folks speaking. And I think that's what I want to see what sixth encuentro looks like um, and how will our young people lead us there. Well, Dr. Carmen Nico Fernandez, I think that's a great place uh, and, an, and an exhortation and ammunition for us moving forward. We're very grateful for your time, for your wisdom, for your ministry and experience. And uh, perhaps our listeners, if they're looking for a good place to begin uh, exploring some of the topics we've discussed further, check out uh, Carmen's book, Theologizing in a Spanglish Context, Community and Ministry. Uh, you'll get a sense of her own uh, theologizing there and uh, addressing some of these topics further. So thank you again. Thanks, David. Thanks, Dan. The Francis Effect podcast is produced by Sandberg Media. We record the show at the William Adams Studios here in beautiful Hyde Park on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. The opinions expressed on this program are our own and do not reflect the position of any institutions with which we might be affiliated. We have production space courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. They're not responsible for the content of this program, but they're wonderful folks, and you should look them up at zygoncenter.org. That's Z-Y-G-O-N-Center.org. We also want to give a shout-out to our friends at Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. They're also not responsible for the content of this program, but they gave us their kind permission to use the name The Francis Effect, and we appreciate it. Check out their good work at saltandlighttv.org. We're supported by listeners like you. If you want to join us in this bold adventure, you can go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod. Not only do you get the warm satisfaction of a virtuous deed well done, but you also unlock bonus content from our episodes. Again, that's patreon.com slash francisfxpod. We appreciate it very much. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at FrancisFXPod. That's Francis, the letters F and X, and the word pod. Likewise, our website is FrancisFXPod.com. And if you want to send us a question or comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing FrancisEffectPod at gmail.com. If you're here for the first time, welcome. We've got a bunch of episodes from our first two seasons. You can check them out. Thank you for listening.